Let's now turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, verses 10 to 13. Hebrews 2, 10 to 13. We know that Christ is the author of our salvation and that he came in human flesh. When he came in human flesh, he came to be our brother in that sense, to be our brother in the human sense. That's what we will study today. Hebrews 2, verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold I and the children whom God has given me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that you'll show us the true meaning and the great significance of why Christ came in human flesh. And we thank you that he did come. He came to partake of flesh and bones just as we have in order to suffer on our behalf. Thank you for his condescension and thank you for his great love toward us. We pray that you'll give us insight by your Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, we are continuing in this section of Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2 verses 5 to 18 in this part of Hebrews 2, the apostle stresses and explains the humanity of Christ, the perfect humanity of Christ. This is after he has explained the deity of Christ in chapter 1, verses 1, and into chapter 2, verse 4. After proving and showing the deity of Christ, that Jesus is to be worshipped by all angels because he's not an angel, and that he is called God and Lord by even God the Father, and he is at the right hand of the Father, all of these show evidences of his deity, of his divine nature. And so because he has a divine nature, we should listen to him and our full allegiance should be to him and to him alone. Then he explains in chapter 2, verses 5 to 18, the humanity of Christ, the necessity of the humanity of Christ, the reality of the humanity of Christ, and the benefits of the humanity of Christ, the benefits for us, why he became a man, a perfect man without any sin, to die on the cross for our sins. And that's the focus now of chapter 2, verses 10 to 13. Now, when we first hear about the humanity of Christ, that may sound like a dull topic. It may sound like it's just mundane and even morose. Well, what's the big deal? He was a man. Well, actually, Many false religions deny aspects of the humanity of Christ and thereby they deny the only means of our salvation, that is, the true identity of Christ. If they don't understand the true identity of Christ in terms of his deity and his humanity, if they misunderstand any of these things, then there is no hope for them. There is no salvation for them. So it is important, it is incumbent upon us to understand correctly the humanity of Christ, because there is much falsehood out there that denies this humanity of Christ. 
either his actual humanity or his perfection and even his death, that he died in time and space. For example, if we consult Islam, Islam teaches that they believe in Jesus. They say Jesus was a real person and he was a prophet, so, so on and so forth. However, Islam denies that Jesus actually suffered to the extent of dying on the cross. They say it appeared that he died, but somebody else actually died. It wasn't Jesus of Nazareth who died on the cross. And most of, the, uh, of Islam says it was Judas Iscariot who died on the cross, not Jesus. Judas died, not Jesus. So there is no significance to the death of Christ on the cross in Islam. Not only that, but if he didn't die on the cross, that means he didn't rise from the dead. If he didn't die and rise from the dead, then he's a liar. He's not the son of God, not the son of man, and we shouldn't put our hope in him. Those are the natural, logical consequences if we believe what Islam says about the humanity of Christ, that he never experienced death. Or shall we consult another false religion, which would be Christian scientists. Christian scientists believe that Jesus was an illusion, illusion, a phantom. He appeared to have a human body, but he did not have a human body because the real physical world is actually to them an illusion. This is also borrowed from religions such as Hinduism and Buddhism that believe that the real tangible physical world that we experience is actually an illusion. They call it Maya, an illusion. Now, Christian scientists claim to be Christians, but we know from their doctrine that they are neither Christians nor scientists. They're not Christians because a Christian believes in the humanity of Christ. According to 1 John chapter 4, the Antichrist is the one that denies that Jesus came in the flesh or that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. This is an anti-Christian doctrine to deny the humanity of Christ. We also have the Mormons. The Mormons say, according to our passage, Jesus is our brother. Because it says in verse 12, I will, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. So Jesus is our brother. Well and good. But what does it mean for Jesus to be our brother? According to Mormons, there is a God for every planet. There are numerous innumerable planets, and there is one male God for all of these planets, and innumerable goddesses for that one male God. And they are constantly procreating in the highest heaven. And when they procreate, they have physical bodies, but when they procreate, they produce spirit babies, intangible, unphysical, non-physical spirit babies. Somehow they believe that. And in, these, in this uh, uh, procreation of spirit babies, the firstborn spirit baby was Jesus in heaven. And then he came down to the earth when... God the Father, who they say was Adam or Michael, came down to earth and had physical relations with Mary while she was espoused to Joseph. While Mary was engaged to Joseph, the way that they say the virgin birth took place and Jesus became our brother in the physical sense was that God the Father had physical relationship with Mary and that's how Jesus was conceived. This is in Mormonism. 
Not, none of this is an exaggeration. None of this is a misrepresentation. All of this is factual. This is what Mormonism teaches. We could go on and on with many and assorted false religions on how they deny in one way or another the humanity of Christ, either his real humanity that he had flesh and blood or his death or even, may I say, his perfection. His perfection. And I would say within the evangelicalism, within evangelicalism, both in the United States and around the world, Evangelicalism refuses, in practice, to believe in the perfection of Christ. They refuse, in practice, to believe in the perfection of Christ, that he was sinless. Now, they, they assert it, of course. Liberal Christians deny the perfection of Christ, his sinlessness. Evangelicals or conservatives believe in, his, in their statements of faith. They assert that he was sinless. But I'm talking about, in practice... Conservative evangelical churches actually deny his perfection, a part of his humanity. And how do they deny it? Do we speak about truth and falsehood the way Jesus speaks? Are we upset? Are we upset when we see evil going on around us? Does outrage rise up within us when we see evil being perpetrated in the name of God, in the name of Christ? Do we see that in evangelicalism? No. We are happy campers in evangelicalism to sit right next to people who commit all kinds of idolatry and immorality. We say nothing, we do nothing, and we say we're all brothers in Christ. That is detestable. And in that way, we are not following the sinlessness of Christ. We don't speak up. We don't take a stand. We don't separate. We don't say, I'm not going to be a part of that. I want nothing to do with that. And yet, we say we believe in the perfection of Christ. Do we really? Do we behave? Do we conduct our life as we go around in this world, whether at home or whether abroad, wherever we are, do we conduct our life the way Jesus does or the way Jesus did? Do we do so? To the extent that we don't do so, we have a wisdom or a sinlessness or a perfection that is superior to Christ. Because what we do is we supplant our methodology, our wisdom, our approach to a matter in a way that Jesus would never approach it, and we think it's better. So we are sinless, and Jesus becomes sinful. Every time we do something in a way that Jesus would never do it, we are sinless, and Jesus is sinful. So I hope from our message today and from this passage and even the next passage that focuses on the humanity of Christ, we will be reflecting and meditating upon what it truly means for Jesus to come in human flesh, him living a perfect life and dying on the cross for our sins. Let's see what this passage says about our topic. Verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Here, he says it was fitting. It was fitting for him. That is, for God the Father. It was fitting for God the Father. Why? Why was it fitting for God the Father 
to do what he explains here. It was fitting because before the foundation of the world, he chose us in him. Before the world was created, he ordained for things to happen in this world, not only generally, but even specifically for our salvation. Because he had decreed it, he had ordained it, he had appointed it before the world ever existed, he is acting on it, and it is fitting for him to act on what he decreed in eternity past. And not only did he decree it in eternity past, but he announced it through his servants, the prophets. Throughout the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, from Moses and all the rest of the prophets, he announced all of these truths to them. Therefore, it was fitting for him to fulfill what the prophets prophesied, the apostles announced as having been accomplished. So there is one message, one Bible, one gospel, a unity in the purpose of God from Genesis to Revelation. The prophets predicted and prophesied what would happen, and they believed in what would happen, and then the apostles saw it, experienced it, and announced what had happened. And that's what we preach. What the apostles preached is what we preach. It has happened, and this is the way of salvation. Therefore, it was fitting for God. Fitting for God because in eternity past and in history, he's accomplishing everything that is necessary for our salvation. Now, is God the Father able to do all of this? Is he wise enough? Is he powerful enough? Is he knowledgeable enough? Indeed, because he says, for whom are all things and through whom are all things? For whom are all things? We exist, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, for the glory of God. We exist for him and his kingdom. We are not here, ultimately, for our own benefit. We are created for the glory of God. That's why he says, for whom are all things. We exist for the glory of God. Not our glory, but his glory. He must increase, but I must decrease. John 3.30. John the Baptist understood this. John the Baptist preaching, and John the Baptist following with a multitude of people coming for baptism... He yet knew he was not doing it for himself. He was doing it for Christ and God the Father. Remember, it says, Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, in, in verses 5 to 11. So we are here for God the Father. We're also here through him, through whom are all things. We would not exist were it not for the immense and infinite power of God. He spoke, and the universe came into existence. He said, let there be light, and there was light. And all the rest of creation that he created, he spoke or he acted in a way that did not exert, uh, expend energy, did not uh, exhaust him or anything like that. He simply desired it, and it happened. He spoke it and it came into being, through whom are all things. Therefore, if it's fitting for him, and it's for his glory, and everything works through him, then we should have confidence in it. We should not suspect it. We should not think that it's a human invention, in other words. We should not think that this is just another human religion. 
This is a religion that starts in heaven and comes down to the earth. It's not a religion, which all other religions are, that start on the earth by human invention, human imagination, human fanaticism, human dotages. It doesn't start from us. It began in heaven. That's the point. And so we should have confidence in it. We should have faith in it. Have faith in the fact that God the Father, the God of gods and the Lord of lords, He is the one who knows what He is doing, and this is what He's doing. He brings many sons to glory. He brings many sons to glory. Notice here, this is a qualifying statement. We saw in chapter 2, verse 9, that Christ tasted death for everyone. But who are the everyone? Who are the everyone that he tasted death for? Let's see here, as we see verses 10 and following. Verse 10 says, this everyone who benefits from the death are many sons. Notice that. It is not all people or every individual who will be saved, but many sons. And verse 10 also says, to perfect the author of their salvation. It's a qualified salvation. It's not a universal salvation. Every person is not going to heaven. The devil and the demons are not going to heaven. But those who are in this category of the many sons, who are further explained in verse 11, those who are sanctified. Those who are sanctified are a part of their salvation, are a part of the many sons, are the everyone of verse 9. Verse 11 also says they are brethren. He's not ashamed to call them brethren. There are some who are brethren or brothers and others who are not. They're not a part of the family of God. Some are a part of the family of God and some are not. Verse 12 continues, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. Now it specifies that they are the brethren of Christ, the brothers of Christ. They are also a congregation, a congregation, an assembly or a congregation is a limited group of people. It does not include every person who ever lived, but it is a limited group of people. Whenever people assemble, there is a subset of a greater population. Furthermore, verse 13, Behold I and the children whom God has given me. I and the children whom God has given me. There are children, that is us, Children that God has given to the Son, who has, He has given to the Son of God. And also verse 14, since then the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same. Verse 17, therefore He had to be made like His brethren in all things. And verse 17 says, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It's not for the sins of every individual, but for the sins of the people. Well, who are the people? Everyone we have just been mentioning from verses 9 and following. That is us. We who are sanctified because of the grace of God, because we are given by God the Father to God the Son. 
As well, we should note in verse 17, this phrase, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, is an allusion to passages such as Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, and Exodus chapter 12, the Passover. Whenever there is a lamb in, in those festivals, especially the Day of Atonement one, when the priest is confessing the sins, he's confessing the sins of all the sons of Israel, which is a limited group. He's not confessing on the goats the sins of all the people of all the world, but of the sons of Israel. That's why he says to make propitiation for the sins of the people, not the peoples of the earth, but the people. So, that's what he means by many sons to glory. But then we may ask, why does he call them sons? Why does he not say children? Or why does he use the phrase or, or, or the term sons? He uses the term sons because he has in view that we are adopted. We, have, we are adopted and we will receive an inheritance. We are strangers and aliens to God, but then he adopts us into his family. He makes us sons who are now in a position to receive an inheritance. Check Galatians 4. Galatians 4, verse 1. Verses 1 to 7. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We were considered slaves, slaves to sin, slaves to the world and the devil. But then God adopted us into his family. We are sons now. And now that we are sons, we are heirs. This is a limited group of people. God does not adopt every person. He adopts a limited chosen few. Here called many sons to glory. Many sons to glory, which is also, uh, a, there is a cross-reference in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 17, he says, If children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We will be glorified in the future when we receive in full our inheritance. Now we have the status of being adopted into the family of God as a son who will receive an inheritance. We have a deposit of our inheritance by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, but we will experience this inheritance in the full in the age to come when Christ returns. One more point we ought to note is we are called sons and adopted sons because God adopted us. We did not adopt him. He adopted us. 
He chose to adopt us. We did not choose to adopt him. This is the way of salvation. We will speak more of that when we reach verse 13. Now he says the, the way or the means in which he did this. He had to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Our salvation took place by means of the author of our salvation, that is Christ. Christ is the author and perfecter of faith, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He started our salvation and he ends our salvation. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. The salvation that we have was started by God the Father and the Son and the Spirit from all eternity and then is manifested in time and space. Notice Hebrews 10. When Jesus comes into the world, this is what happens between him and God the Father. He says these words to God the Father. Hebrews 10. After explaining how the blood of bulls and goats could not affect our salvation, he says in verse 5, Hebrews 10:5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, when Jesus comes into the world, he says to God the Father, sacrifice and offering you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. In the roll of the book, that is, in the Old Testament, it's written of him. So when he came into the world in his incarnation, he speaks these words in order to affirm the fact that he knows why he's coming into the world, He's coming into the world as the author of salvation in order to fulfill everything that the Old Testament says about his ministry, about his life and ministry. And we may wonder, why does it say here to perfect Christ? Why does it say to perfect the author of salvation through sufferings? It says perfect because of what is known as both the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. He had to be perfected in this sense. He had to experience both active obedience throughout his life and ministry. Actively, he had to love God and love his neighbor as himself, perfectly, obeying the Ten Commandments and all of the 613 commandments of the Law of Moses, obeying them both internally and externally, both in thought, word, and deed. In every way, he had to obey. This is known as the active obedience of Christ. In this way, he is perfected, because when he was first born into the world, he did not actively do any of these things. Yet, he had to be perfected throughout his life in the sense that, not that he wasn't perfect before, but he had to experience these things. He had to experience active Obedience, Not only active obedience, but passive obedience, as it's known, and that is a reference to his death. He had to have that obedience that led to the cross and all of the humiliation and persecution and sufferings that he had to experience that led up to that cross 
and then to be crucified, not fighting against it, but passively receiving all of that on his own body, in his own body, while he was on the cross. He did those things. He had to do it. If he had not done it, then our salvation would not have been perfected. It was necessary for him to do that. And that's why our apostle says here, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Through his act of obedience, he resisted and resisted and resisted every moment of every day until he died. So he was perfect in that sense. And then he was the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world when he died on the cross for our sins. This is why he says he was perfected. Something we could not do, Jesus did on our behalf because of his identity being of a divine nature and a human nature without sin, perfectly obeying and perfectly dying in our place. This was necessary for our salvation. No other human could do this. No mere man could do this. You and I could not do this. No great religious teacher could do this. Nobody, absolutely nobody could do this except the one and only Son of God appointed by God the Father to accomplish this for us. And it happened through sufferings. It happened through sufferings. We noted earlier in in previous messages that the apostle is trying to encourage these believers and even admonish these believers not to walk away from the faith, not to backslide, not to turn away from the faith, do not apostatize, do not reject Christ. Cling on to Christ, hold on to Christ, hold fast onto Him until the very end, until you see Him face to face. And why? Because in their life they were experiencing afflictions, including persecution. Afflictions inclusive of persecutions. Persecutions likely from family and from foreigners, both from friends and from foes. They were experiencing persecution. And he's saying, don't give up. Don't go back and resort to the uh, animal sacrifices. Don't go back into idolatry. Don't go back into this or that or anything. Hold on to Christ until the very end. And he's saying here, listen, the author of our salvation who came from above, who came from glory to give us glory, to bring many sons to glory, he who came from heaven, he who was God in human flesh, perfect in every way, the spotless Lamb of God, if he had to die, if he had to suffer, if he had to be persecuted, if he had to be maligned and slandered, and he did it for our salvation, then why are we anxious? Why are we fearful? Why do we dread men? Why are we intimidated by what they say and what they might do to us? We should not be intimidated at all. But we should say, we know Christ did. Our eldest brother did. Our leader did. The author of our salvation did. So it should be up to us too. We should do it as well. You may recall from Romans 8, 17, that this is actually a requirement for for all of us, for each of us, to suffer. Suffering precedes glory. Romans 8, 17. 
And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering precedes glory. Humiliation precedes exaltation. We have to be humbled before we will be lifted up. This is the pattern of God. It's clearly seen in the person and work of Christ, and it's also incumbent and a requirement for us to experience the same. Because he says, we, if we are children, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. If we suffer, then we, we will be glorified. Which means, if we do not suffer, then we will not be glorified. The Christian life, in other words is not uh, a cakewalk, it's not a bed of ease, it's not comfortable, it's not full of roses without thorns, it's not like that. It is a Christian life that has suffering included and embedded in it. This is why, one major reason why, many people never come to Christ, and even when they pretend to be Christians, they don't want any hearing, they don't want any kind of message, they don't want any kind of notice that their Christian life is a life of affliction from this day forward. They want to hear peace and prosperity. They want to hear health and wealth. They want to hear that God is good all the time. Meaning, not that God's not good, and not that he's not good all the time, but what they mean by that is, Whenever anything happens, it's not intended for you as a Christian. Anything negative happens, it's not intended for you as a Christian because the only thing God ever wants to do is to bring wealth, abundance, peace, comfort, convenience into your life, and your Christian life should have no kind of restraint, no kind of discipline, no kind of affliction. That should not happen, and if it does happen, that's only because you don't have enough faith. That's wrong. That's unbiblical. And it's contrary to our Lord and Savior and our relationship to Him, our true relationship to Him. Now, verse 11. He explains how this happens. For both He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. So Christ is the he, the first he here. For both he who sanctifies, that is Christ. Christ is the one who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified are us, all of us who believe, are all from one Father. We are all from one Father, Therefore, we are united. Therefore, there is solidarity. Therefore, there is unity between us and Him. This is why the, the Bible, 1 Corinthians 12, calls Christ the head of the church, and we are His body. If we are His body, then we are one with Him. We are united to Him. We are one, and therefore, what He experiences, we experience. What we experience, He experiences. This is the way God has intended it to be. Now, it says here, from one Father. 
The New American Standard Bible has father italicized, so, so that means that it's not in the original Greek language, but it is implied according to the translators. Now, your translation may not say father, it may simply say one, and commentators are um, of varied opinions as to what he means here from one father or from one source or like from Adam, from one person like Adam, or from one nature, that is having a human nature. These are the different opinions. I actually think that the New American Standard is the likely correct understanding of it, one father, and why? Because in the following passage, he addresses us as members of the same family. He says, he has already said that in verse 10, many sons, but also in verse 11, he says, brethren, we're from one father, therefore we are brothers. And also in verse 12, we are brethren. And in verse 13, we are children. And verse 14, we are children. So I think that it's likely that what our apostle intended was, since we have one heavenly father, when we belong to him, we are adopted into his family because of Christ, who is our eldest brother, because of our relationship to him. Therefore, nothing should surprise us. We should understand that if Christ was willing to come into the world and be united to us, then we should be ready and willing. We should be diligent to follow Christ no matter what. We also notice he, he says that this is sanctification. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. We're all from one Father. He says, Christ sanctifies us and we are sanctified. So the actor, the active agent, is Christ who sanctifies us. And then we are the passive recipients of that sanctification. Those who are sanctified, that is us. We do not sanctify ourselves. Christ sanctifies us. We do not originate the idea that we want to be sanctified, but He originates the idea, and He has the power, and He has the wisdom. He has the means to sanctify us. And sanctification is making holy or setting apart, making holy, consecrating, setting apart us. We needed to be made holy. We needed to be set apart because we were a part of the world. Now he needs to take us out of the world, set us apart from the world, and transform us and reform us and conform us to be like Christ, to be like the one who sanctifies us. Christ sanctifies us, and we become like him. He further expands, which we will see in due course, in chapter 10. Chapter 10, that it is Christ who sanctifies us by his life and death. Hebrews 10 and verse 10. By this will, that is the, by the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. God separated us from the world by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And this sanctification includes suffering. Notice chapter 13, Hebrews 13. 
Hebrews 13, verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. We are seeking the city which is to come, that is the heavenly city, not the temporary earthly cities. We're not about building them up. We are about building up eternity. And verse, verses 10 and 11, he says, The people who are still hoping in the animal sacrifices, they have no right they have no right to eat and partake of the ultimate sacrifice. The ultimate sacrifice that sanctified us, the people, was through His own blood, verse 12. Jesus' own blood sanctifies us, makes us holy. It's necessary and right and good to believe in His blood, not the blood of animals. And He suffered and died outside the gate. By suffering, He means he includes death. He suffered outside the gate, just like the animal was put to death. It was sacrificed on the altar. He went outside the camp bearing his reproach. He had a reproach. And we also must bear his reproach. We also must suffer. So our sanctification in this passage, in this book, this letter to the Hebrews, includes us being delivered from the world, the filth and pollution of the world, to be made holy in a new people, into the people of God. And it also includes suffering, even to the extent of suffering until death, bearing his reproach or bearing his cross. This is why Jesus said in Luke 9.23, If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Deny ourselves because we were used to indulging ourselves in the world. Now we must deny ourselves daily, take up our cross daily, follow him daily. Is, it, is the impl implication of Luke 9.23. That means be ready and willing to die. This is what sanctification means. It begins with our conversion and it is consummated at the return of Christ. Why should we do this? He keeps saying for, because he keeps explaining. He keeps saying why, and why, and why. Because we naturally want to know why. And we naturally want to be reiterated and confirmed in our faith. So he says, for which reason? For which reason, he's explaining, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He, Christ, is not ashamed to call them, us, brethren, brothers. Why should we live this way? Why should we consider Christ? Because he who lived in glory, he who dwelt where there is no sin, he who dwelt where angels dwell, he who was, is worshipped by angels, he dwelt there and he came in condescension, in humility, in suffering and affliction to live 
perfectly in this world and to die for our sins, to be a substitute for our sins because we deserve the penalty of death, eternal death in the lake of fire. And he took that away from us when he died in our place on the cross. Now that's what he did. Some of that was explained already in chapters 1 and 2, that he left glory and he came here to make purification for sins. Now, if Christ, who is God in human flesh, is not ashamed to call us brethren, what should that tell us? He should be ashamed to call us brothers because we are sinful in our natural state. Naturally, we are sinful, we're obstinate, we're blind, we're hard-hearted, we don't want to listen, we have our eyes closed, everything is true of us in our natural condition. So he should not be willing to come. He should not. So he took an unlovely, grotesque object, that is us, and he came to die for us, to transform us and to make us into a new creation in Christ. Now he's not ashamed because his righteousness, his perfection, his holiness is granted to us and therefore we have become something like him. And we are becoming something like him. We are being conformed into the image of his son. That, that is the purpose. And so he has chosen not to be ashamed to identify with us. Not to be ashamed to call us brothers. He is not ashamed to call us brothers when he has every right to be ashamed to call us brothers. Another implication of this is we should not be ashamed of him. If he, who has every right to be ashamed of us, we have no grounds to be ashamed of him. Have we considered that? He is not ashamed to call us brothers. So we should not be ashamed to identify with him and call him our father or call Jesus our oldest brother. That should not, that thought should never enter our minds. In fact, Jesus says in Mark chapter 8 and verse 38 that we should not be ashamed. Mark 8, 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. When Jesus returns, he says that if we are ashamed of him now, he will be ashamed of us when he returns. That means that if we are going to be true to the faith, if we're going to adhere to Christ properly, we will not be ashamed of him but whenever that shame arises within us, when it wells up within us, we need to beat it down. We need to buffet it, buffet our body and make it our, our slave. Lest possibly after we have preached to others, we ourselves should be disqualified. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. This should not happen. When he returns, whoever is ashamed of him, Christ will be ashamed of him, he says. May that not happen. May that not be true of us. Another place is 1 John 2, 28. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at 
His coming. Let us have confidence. Confidence in Christ and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. As well, Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 37. For yet in a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. That is the return of Christ. Then verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. This passage not only reminds us of the same truth, that Christ will come and we should not shrink back, and if we shrink back, Christ will have no pleasure in us, but also it says quite clearly that if we shrink back, it is to destruction which means that there's no eternal life, but eternal condemnation. But on the other hand, if we are true believers, we name the name of Christ, we have made a profession and confession of faith in Christ, we say we love Him, we say we know Him, and if that is true of us, then we have true faith, and that true faith preserves our soul. Or as John says in 1 John 5, 4 and 5, it is our faith that overcomes the world. Our faith overcomes the world. This is the faith that we must have and not be ashamed. Let's go on further. Verses 12 and 13. First, verse 12. Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now, this is proof that Christ is not ashamed of us. He's giving proof texts, verse 12 and 13, three proof texts. He's proving his point by quoting the Old Testament and proving that Christ is not ashamed of us. He welcomes us, and we are a part of him. We are a part of his family. The first proof comes from a quote uh, in Psalm 22, verse 22. Psalm 22, 22. He quotes that psalm, which is a messianic psalm. That psalm is not about King David or not about anybody else. That psalm is about Christ. It is the words of Christ and describing his own suffering and persecution and death. And not only that in the first part of the chapter, but in the last part of the chapter, where our passage is, Psalm 22, 22, describes his exaltation. A day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the context of this. So here, he says that he will proclaim the name of God to his brethren. And in the midst of the congregation, he will sing the praise of God the Father. Now, if Christ is willing to openly sing the praise of God the Father and to identify with us, that shows how much He loves us. That shows how much He has redeemed us, how much He has cared for us, how much He has sought after our best interests, the forgiveness of our sins, reconciliation between us and Him, to call us brothers, that we might be in the assembly of God, the congregation of God. This is what He has done. He is courageous and bold and joyful 
to be able to mention the name of God the Father and to sing of God the Father in the midst of the people of God. And if Jesus is that way, should we not be that way too? We should do that now and anticipate the day when we will do that in eternity. Revelation chapters 4 and 5 describe that, that we will do so for all eternity. We should do it now and do it then. He's not ashamed of us, so we should not be ashamed of him. We should, when we meet together, however and whenever we meet, we should be with great enthusiasm and alacrity desiring to speak of the things of God, to talk about who God is and what he has done for us and how he has redeemed us and what it means to follow him, what it means to know him, what his word teaches. That should be our point of discussion. Verse 13, and again, proving his point, I will put my trust in him. This is most likely a quote from Isaiah 8.17. Isaiah 8.17, the phraseology in the Greek language of this verse and the Greek language of Isaiah 8.17, the Greek translation of the Hebrew of Isaiah 8.17, in both places, the Greek phraseology and terminology is almost identical, almost identical, so it's likely that our apostle is quoting Isaiah 8.17. However, some interpreters think he's quoting Psalm 18, verse 2, Psalm 18, 2. Psalm 18, 2 is acknowledged by ancient Jewish sources as being a messianic psalm. The psalm is not about David, but it's about Messiah, Christ. In fact, in 1831, the Aramaic Targum, which is a translation of the Hebrew of, of Psalm 18, it actually says in 1831, your Messiah, describing the Lord, describing God, and speaks of him as your Messiah. So there, even the Targumists, those who translated from Hebrew into the Aramaic language many, many generations ago, thought that Psalm 18 was messianic about Christ. And so that's why interpreters take Psalm 18 to be his citation. I, however, take it to be Isaiah 8.17, and I'll tell you why. The interpreters usually do not prefer Isaiah 8 because they can't see Isaiah 8 as being Jesus who is speaking or Christ who is speaking. They see him speaking in other places like Psalm 18 or Psalm 22, but they don't see him speaking in Isaiah 8. I, however, think that there is a valid basis to see him speaking in Isaiah 8, 17. Because Jesus is the Word of God, and Jesus is the primary person who spoke to the prophets of old. It was the Spirit of Christ within the prophets testifying of Christ. So the audible verbal word of God, typically in the Old Testament, came by the mouth of Christ. That's why he is known as the Word. And even the Aramaic and the Jewish commentators, the ancient ones, they spoke of him often as the Word, Messiah as the Word, or the revelation of God, they simply spoke of it as the Word, when he is actually the person, the second person of the Holy Trinity. So, that's why I think in Isaiah 8, 
we can, if we study that passage carefully, that we can see Christ is the speaker there, delivering the word of God. And so he tells Isaiah, after saying that he's going to be a stone of stumbling and rock of offense, Isaiah 8.14, he also says, I will put my trust in him. Because Isaiah and his contemporaries were few in number who truly believed in the Lord. The vast majority of the people who claimed to be the people of God did not really believe in God because they didn't believe in his Christ. Isaiah believed in his Christ. Others believed in his Christ. And so Isaiah and the others might be discouraged. So what does Christ say? Christ says that Christ has put his trust in God the Father as a means of encouragement for us that we should put our trust in God the Father. If Christ has put his trust in God the Father, we should also. We know he did that while he was on the earth. We know he said, for example, in John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. We know that he prayed to God constantly. He would often go out to a lonely place to pray to the Father. He would do so. He trusted in him. So we should trust in him. So we who trust in God are one family of God is the implication. I will put my trust in him. He calls us to put trust in God, but he has done so as the epitome of a man of faith or a person who trusts God. Furthermore, verse 13, And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me, which is indeed universally understood to be a quote from Isaiah 8, 18. Isaiah 8, 18. There, Christ says, look, look, Isaiah and you others, don't be discouraged. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. We're all bound up together. We all belong to each other. We all belong to each other because the Father has given you, my children or disciples, you've given all of these people to me. We all belong to each other. So do not be discouraged. This is the point of Isaiah 8. And this is also the point of Hebrews and much of the Bible. To encourage us, we who are afflicted, suffering, persecuted, bewildered by our circumstances, do not let those circumstances overwhelm us. Put constant trust in God. We also have to note, God gave the children to Christ. That means the children did not give themselves to Christ, but God gave them to Christ. This is showing election, choice, predestination, God's appointment, however we would want to call it, biblically speaking. All of these are biblical words. That this is what indeed has happened. For us to be a part of the family of God, it did not happen by our will, by our goodness, but it happened by the will of God. John 6.37 confirms our verse. John 6.37, All that the Father gives me, our same word, give, shall come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Coming to Christ is equivalent to believing in Christ according to John 6, 35. 
Furthermore, John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they all shall be taught of God. He explains his quote from the prophets. He quotes Isaiah 54, 13 and Jeremiah 31, 34. He conflates them, that is, he puts the two concepts together, and then he says, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. The Father gives them in, by this means. We hear secretly, mysteriously, by His Holy Spirit convincing us. We learn from the Father. That is, we learn that it is true and right to believe in Christ dying for our sins. And then we come. Come meaning we believe. John 6, 65. And He was saying, For this reason I, ha I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Granted him from the Father, or given him from the Father to come to Christ. If the Father gives us to Christ, we will come to Christ. We will believe in him. And John 17, John 17, verse 9. I ask on their behalf, Christ is praying. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. They are yours. They are God the Father's. And then he says that God the Father gave them to the Son, whom you have given me. And he's not talking about the world. He's talking about the brethren, the many sons, the children. That's what he's talking about. This is a passage, in other words, that emphasizes the grace of God. Verse 10 and verse 13 encapsulate this passage by the grace of God. How do we actually become children? How do we actually become brethren? How do we actually become saved and have the author of salvation, his work applied to us? It begins with God. It begins in eternity past by God the Father giving some, the many sons, to the Son of God. That's how we become a part of the people of God and the family of God. Let's reconsider these truths and see how amazing and wonderful it is that Christ had to be made like us in perfection to pay the penalty for our sins. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.